The scripture from today's teaching is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. You guys can be seated. Man, you you know it's going to be a good day when there's applause just by the scripture being read. So that's great. So I recently gave up social media and deleted all, all of that off of my phone. I'm trying to make my iPhone as dumb of a phone as possible. And uh, so I took off Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anything that I, I had access to for social media. And let me just say, I feel great. I feel very happy and filled with joy as a result of that decision. You should try it. But one of the things that I really, really miss, actually, uh, probably the only redeemable thing about Facebook, in my opinion, is that feature when you would log on and it would show you a picture, and at the top it was titled, On This Day, and it's the Facebook Memories feature. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, if you don't, the one other person in the room that doesn't have Facebook, the, the idea of this is that it'll just take a picture that you took that day a year ago or two years ago or however long ago, and it'll just show it to you. And what I love about this is it has a way of stirring your memory, reminding you of what was happening, and then that has a way of actually affecting your emotions. Have you noticed? And this is a really cool feature that Facebook does. And, and Google actually does this as well. Google does this, and in my, in my opinion, Google Photos does this a lot better than Facebook. So here's how it works. Like the other day, my wife got an alert on her phone, and it, said, it literally was titled, They Grow Up So Fast. And against our better judgment, we clicked on it, and it started showing these pictures of my oldest daughter, Evie. She's seven years old, but it was all these pictures of her, like when she was born, like in the hospital, us holding Evie. And then like from the hospital, it moved on and it was like Evie learning how to walk and even had videos of Evie like saying phrases in really cute ways. And, and, and we're watching this video, it has music playing in the background and, and it is a little creepy that it like knows who my daughter is and like can pull all the pictures of her up like that and send it to us. It is creepy. But this whole thing unfolded like all these major holidays and birthdays and events. And, and I look over at my wife and she's bawling. <laughs> 
and, and I've got tears in my eyes, and it's like, Google, what have you done to us? Well, we're, a, we're a crying mess. And I love, love these features because there's something about us as humans where we just get amnesia about some of the greatest things in life. And seeing a picture can remind you of, oh man, I remember what it was like in the hospital holding her for the first time. I remember what it was like on her first birthday. I remember when she was that age and how fun that was. There's something about remembering because we so easily forget. So today, here's what we're doing. Today we are in week two of a series called Renewal. And if you're just joining us, the the whole idea of this series is that we as uh, the people of God, and I get that not all of you are. Some of you are here and you're checking things out. You're wrestling with the claim of Christianity. And we just want to say welcome to you in that place. You don't have to believe like we believe. We just want you to to be who you are and wrestle with that. And we want to walk with you as you wrestle. But if you are a follower of Jesus, the greatest thing in life that you need, and you may have forgotten this, is more of the presence of God. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, our argument to you is that the greatest thing in life that you need is not a new life hack. It's not to download some new app. It's not to like get your finances in order. All of those things can be great. What you need is more of God. And what we're after in the series is for a fresh infusion of the life of God in our own life, to be renewed in places where we feel dead. And what I want to say to you is I think that probably the greatest barrier, at least one of the greatest barriers between you and experiencing more renewal in Jesus is how easily you forget and the need that you have to be reminded. Uh, John Ortberg says this. He says, the problem of the human race is that we remember what we should forget, sin, and we forget what we should remember, God. People today who have more information at their fingertips than all previous generations combined cannot remember who they are, why they are here, or what they are to do. We have amnesia. We've forgotten who we are, why we are, what we're supposed to be doing here on planet earth. And it's because of our proneness to forget God and to slip into apathy and forgetfulness that one of the themes that emerges in scripture, if you look at from old to new Testament, one of the themes that pops up over and over is God constantly asking his people not to forget. He's like calling them. Hey, remember, remember, let me just give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 8, this is right after God had rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves for 400 years, harshly oppressed, and he's leading them into freedom and eventually into the promised land. And he says, hey, when you get there and when life is comfortable, don't forget or don't, don't, yeah, don't forget what I've done. He says this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying, hey, don't let comfort rob you of the reality of what I've done for you. Don't forget. Remember. In fact, the the Sabbath, which is a weekly practice of taking 24 hours to rest and to worship, this was a, a practice that God instituted for his people primarily so that they wouldn't forget. Let me read this. This is Deuteronomy 5. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. 
that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Like, keep the Sabbath because every time you have a Sabbath, a day of rest and worship, it's to remind you of the reality of what God has done. You, you read in the Psalms that the psalmist over and over again are, are reminding their hearts of who God is and what he's done. Like here's an example in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And look at this. And forget not all his benefits. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but that language almost makes me uncomfortable to talk about God as like benefits, right? That feels consumeristic. And yet the psalmist is here saying, hey, don't, don't forget, soul, that something about God has benefits to your life. There's benefits. And he unpacks what those are. He says, don't forget them. The Bible actually often describes our sin and patterns of sin at its core as forgetting God. Here's one of many examples in Judges 8, 34. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And if you read Judges, here's the pattern. It's like God does something powerful, powerful for his people. He redeems them. They grow comfortable and they forget. And then as soon as they forget God, they drift into sin and apathy and they start to look more like the pagan nations than what God had called them to look like. And then life goes terrible for them and then God redeems them and the whole process starts back over again and again and again. And sin is primarily at the root. It's them forgetting God. Don't forget. And then this is why when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, one of the things that he does over and over and over again is just to remind the people of God of what the gospel always is. Look at this. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you. I love this. He's like, hey, I've already told you this. I've told you this dozens of times. I'm going to tell you this again. I've reminded you of the gospel which you received in which you stand. And then he says these words. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and then that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, I I know you've heard it. I'm going to tell you again, though, because we easily forget. This is the most important thing, the gospel. So in conclusion, Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, the chief theological task now facing the Western church is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. We must remember the old, old story. We must remember the faith once delivered to the saints. We must remember the truths that spark reformation, revival, and regeneration. So that's what I'm going to do today is I'm going to remind you of the gospel. What we're doing in the series is we're, in the words of A.W. Tozer, we're putting ourselves in the way of the blessing, right? God is the one that brings renewal. He's the one that can bring a sense of revival and refreshment to the church. But there's actually something you and I need to do. And there's things, there's these pathways that the ancient church has always grabbed a hold of uh, as means of experiencing more renewal, putting their way in the, putting themselves in the way of the blessing. And, and one of the ways that the church has been renewed throughout history is by recovering and remembering the gospel. Maybe the church has forgotten the gospel, or maybe there are aspects of the gospel that the church has forgotten. And once those get remembered and recovered, often a sense of revival and renewal is poured out 
on the church. So that's what we're talking about is the gospel. Now, when I say gospel, like what, what do we mean by that phrase? If, if you've been in church a long time or if you haven't and you're he- hearing this, like that, that seems like a churchy word. What do we mean by gospel? Well, uh, the, the word in Greek is euangelion, and this was actually a word that was really popular and common in the first century culture, even before Jesus shows up, right? This was a word that Romans would use. So here's kind of, imagine this scene, like the Roman army would go out to battle fighting an enemy, and if Caesar and the Roman army were victorious, they would send a messenger back in town to herald the euangelion to herald the gospel. And, and the messenger would show up in town. He'd be running into town and he'd say, hey, I've got euangelion. I've got good news. That's what it means. It literally just means a good news announcement. I've got good news. Caesar is victorious. The Romans have won that battle that we went out and fought. We were victorious. So this was a common word that was used primarily to describe Roman victories in battle, and they would announce the good news of their victory in battle. And so think about this. The early church, I love the early church because they're like so creative and, and just like almost, they're just, they don't even care. This is a word that's culturally used for one thing, and they're like, hey, that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to steal that word, and that's going to be our word now, right? So we have gospel too, and it's way better than Rome won. It's that Jesus is the king, and he has won. He has defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and we want to announce that good news. So that when we say gospel, we just mean a good news announcement about the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring redemption to his people and one day restore what went wrong in the Garden of Eden to remake, to remake the earth in the way that God intended. That's what we're talking about. Paul sums it up with Jesus died in our place for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. That's how he sums it up. So that's what we're talking about. And there's a lot of ways that we could look at the gospel, but the way that I want to look at it with you today is by giving you Paul's narrative of how we experience the gospel on the ground. So Ephesians 2, let's start with the bad news. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's another way to talk about the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, not just them in this day and culture, but all of us, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, First thing I want you to see, first thing I want you to remember, I want you to remember who you once were. Remember who you once were. Paul begins his gospel narrative, not with a high note, but with a really, really low note. It's, hey, and you were dead. You were dead. This is how he starts out his good news announcement. Now, here's the reality. Like, there was a time in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, when even though uh, your brainstem was firing— Even though your heart was pumping blood through your veins, there was a time in your life when although being physically very much alive, you were in fact, in the eyes of God, spiritually dead. 
And you were like what Paul says, you were kind of like the walking dead. Because although you were dead, you were very much alive in your activity of rebellion against God. You were actually following three primary factors. One was the world. So just the way of the world, which is uh, kind of in the scriptures seen as opposed to the way of Jesus. And, and the way of the world was how you lived and how you functioned. The values of the world were your values. The gods of this world were your gods. The, the, the idols of the world were what you were chasing and pursuing. That's how you were functioning. And it wasn't just the world, but it was also the flesh, right? You were kind of uh, wrapped up in your own internal desires. And when the Bible says flesh, it's not talking about the fatty part of your skin that wraps up your skeletal structure. Flesh is like this internal desire that you have to do things that are disordered and wrong. And, and you were just a slave to your flesh. You were doing whatever it was that your heart desired. And then it says that we were also following the devil, right? You might not have considered yourself a Satanist, right? You're like, I didn't worship Satan. I didn't. But if before Jesus saved you, his vision of life and his vision of rebellion against God became your vision. And that's how you lived. You lived as someone who is dead in sin. Now, we tend to think of ourselves as these free, autonomous individuals that can just build the life that we want and live how we please. And, and, and maybe we can do that with God or without God. But either way, we're these free, autonomous individuals. And the way that scripture portrays us is actually very, very different. It says, no, you are actually a slave to your sin. Like the, the sin inside of you, you couldn't just break free. You couldn't just do your, like you were a slave to that sin. Your own disordered desires controlled you. We tend to think of our sin as like, well, I'm mainly a good person and I just occasionally do bad things. No, the way scripture talks about this is that the reason you do bad things is because you inherently were bad. And, and even though you had moments of goodness, and moments of doing things that were beautiful and right, even behind that, there were motivations that were twisted and disordered. Richard Lovelace talks about sin this way. He says, in its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated incidents, instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex. An organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Sin originated in the darkening of the human mind and heart as man turned from the truth about God to embrace a lie about him, and consequently a whole universe of lies about his creation. Sinful thoughts, words, and deeds flow forth from this darkened heart automatically and compulsively as water from a polluted fountain. Now look at this. He says, the human heart is now a reservoir of unconscious, disordered motivation and response. And if you don't believe that this is just the complex of the human nature, watch the six o'clock news and prove me wrong. Our world is doing whatever the heck they want to do. And it's in a way that's disordered and broken and wrong. And this is who we were. Now, let me pause and say, like, why does it actually matter to remember this? If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe your shame in your past is the very thing that you're trying to forget. Maybe that's why you're here. You're like, no, I actually crawled into church today to not remember what I did last week. I don't want to remember what happened in my past. I want to move on. Well, here's why it matters to remember who you once were because your depth of gratitude, your depth of celebration, your depth of thankfulness and joy in God 
is intimately connected to the depths of realization that you have about just how sinful you are and just how holy God is. And when you forget those two realities, you no longer care about God whatsoever. It just is irrelevant. Who needs God? Like, I'm doing just fine without him. And one of the things that's so intriguing is as you study revival throughout history and renewals throughout history, one of the hallmarks of every revival, every powerful move of God, is that the first thing that happens is this overwhelming sense of their sinfulness and the holiness of God. Like a breathtaking crushing, overwhelming sense of how sinful we are and how holy God is. In fact, in the Hebrides revival, which I've been just so stirred about, it happened between 1949 and 1952. Uh, there's a story of a young girl that was at a dance and she was far from God. And, 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 and the power of God showed up in this dance and over a hundred teenagers rushed out of the building and began crying out for mercy from God, just spontaneously. It's like late at night. And this young girl, she runs to the church and there's a, a meeting happening in the church and, and, and Duncan, Duncan Campbell, the, the guy that was kind of leading this revival, he walks up to the pulpit to go preach and the teenage girl is laying next to the pulpit, weeping, crying out loud. She's saying, God, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? There's a puddle of tears around her and she's just weeping, crying out. Because the first thing that happens in revival is an overwhelming sense of who we were apart from the grace of God. Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah 6. The prophet Isaiah gets kind of brought before the presence of God and his cry is, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts presence of God, woe is me. Another one, Luke 5, talks about Peter, the apostle Peter, when he first encounters the power of Jesus. He says these words, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The apostle John in Revelation 1, by the way, John is called the beloved uh, disciple, and John calls himself that, which is kind of cool and funny. You know, he's like, oh, I'm the beloved disciple. Uh, you know, that's how he talks about himself. And yet, this is his experience encountering the presence of Jesus and Revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. My point is this. One of the reasons why you may not come in overwhelmed with joy and gratitude and hands clapping and arms raised and celebration is because maybe, just maybe, you've forgotten who you once were. You were dead. You followed the devil. You were a slave of your flesh. You had disordered desires that always had the last word. And you were so dead, you couldn't fix it. That's who you once were. Second thing I want you to remember, look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, the two greatest words in scripture, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. He can't help but keep repeating that. And this is not your own doing. None of it. The faith to believe, the great, all of it. 
was a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to remind you, here's the second thing I want to remind you of, is what God did. Remember who you once were, but don't stop there. Thank God the passage doesn't stop there. Like now, the second thing you need to do is remember what God did. The, the good news of the gospel, the reason why we call this a good news announcement, is not because the message of Christianity is, hey, you are really, really bad, so just try harder to not be bad. You are really, really bad, so if you just get in church and get your life together and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and clean your life up and make yourself a little bit more presentable and try, God might actually forgive you and love you. No, that is not the gospel. And in fact, sometimes we even paint the picture of the gospel like this. Well, imagine you're drowning and then you're struggling in the water, you're struggling and then, and then Jesus pulls up in a boat and he throws you a life raft out of an overflow of his love and mercy. Here, here's some help. And then you grab a hold of this raft and then he pulls you safely to shore. That's the gospel. No, that's not the story of the gospel. Here's a better story. You're out in the ocean drowning and then you drowned like it fully happened. You just sank right to the bottom and you died. And then you were down there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there were crabs that were coming and like picking at your flesh, right? And you're just dead. Like you're just gone. You're completely dead. And then eventually your body washes up to shore and God walks by and in an overflow of his love and mercy for you, even in that condition and state, raises you up and gives you life. That's the story of the gospel. This is why we get happy and excited and joyful. Not because the story is we were really bad and then we became really good and God is, no, no, no. The story is we were dead and God made us alive by his grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't try. Literally, he came to us and he offered us a gift of his grace, which was life in our dead state. He loved us when we were dead. Why did God do that? Why would he do that? Well, here's a bad answer. A bad answer is, well, because we deserved it. Like, that's just not an honest answer when you look inside of your own heart. You know that you didn't deserve it. And he says again and again, for by grace you have been saved. It's not a result of your works. Here's maybe a better answer. Some of you are like, well, I've read John Piper. I think I know the answer. Here's why God has done this. He did this for his glory. Well, that's a beautiful answer that's generally theologically true. But that's not the answer that Paul gives us. It's not what Paul says. Look at what Paul says, why God did this. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which God loved us. Why did God make you alive? Because he loves you. Even though you didn't deserve it. He can't help himself. He wants to be with you. He wants to love you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you to be with him. And and no amount of your sin and no amount of your separation from God and no amount of even you that are like, I don't believe in, no amount of that could separate you from his love. He just loved you at your worst and made you alive. I love this with Christ language. Did you pick up on this? Look at it again. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together, look at this, with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, you know that at some point in the life of Jesus, after about three years of earthly ministry, Jesus died on a cross and he was buried. But then what did God the Father do? On the third day, he came to Jesus, his dead corpse, and he reanimated the life of Jesus. Not just in a spiritual sense. I'm talking physically, his brainstem turned back on. And Jesus rose from the dead. And then what happened with Jesus? The Father didn't just raise him, but he uh, ascended into heaven. And and, and the Father sat Jesus down at the right hand of God on a throne to reign as king over every king. That's what happened to Jesus. That's the story of Jesus. Well, guess what? If you are in Jesus— That's your story too. You are so connected by faith to Jesus that when God raised Jesus from the dead, it's like we are in Jesus now and we're getting raised from the dead too. When God uh, raised Jesus to the heavenly places and sat him down, it's like God is raising us in the heavenly places and sitting us down next to Jesus too. You are so secure in Jesus that you are like literally spiritually, the Father looks at you as seated in heaven right now with Jesus. Let me just remind you of who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ. You are God's child. You are declared righteous before God, meaning that he doesn't just forgive you and be like, I'll somehow find a way to put up with you. No, he takes all the righteousness of Jesus and he gives it to you as a gift. It's called imputed righteousness. You've been chosen and adopted by God. You've been redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. Not most of it, not part of it, all your sins. You have direct access to the throne of grace. You are free from condemnation. You cannot ever be separated from the love of God. You're seated with Jesus in the heavenly realm. You have a new identity. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Here's why I say all of that. Because as you grasp who you are in Christ, and we could go on and on for hours it creates a sense of awe and worship and intimacy with God because you realize he is not loving you based on your performance or behavior. He loves you because he loves you. And you are secure in Jesus. No more condemnation. Forgiven, righteous, his child. He wants to be with you. That changes the way that you worship. Changes the way that you experience renewal and intimacy. I think often this is how I think of God in my broken state. I think of God as being up in heaven and there's this ladder that I have to climb of morality. You know, like I've got to read my Bible and I've got to pray and I've got to do these things that Jesus taught. And by the way, I'm all like, see the Sermon on the Mount. I'm all about this, right? We did four months on this and there is a need that we have to do this. But I often picture my relationship with God as a ladder and, you know, by the end of the day, hopefully I can get to the top. But then often when I sin, I fall down to the very bottom rung. I love what Richard Loveless says, or Richard Foster says. He says, ladders are always intimidating. And it is my suspicion that Christians should always assume that they start each day at the top of the ladder in contact with God and then renew this assumption whenever they have slipped a rung. How would that change your relationship to Jesus? If you just started each day going, I I know that he's for me. I know that he loves me. I know he's committed and I'm righteous in him. And I'm going to live my day out of that reality. So, in revival, there's an overwhelming sense of our sin and the holiness of God. And then that leads us to an overwhelming sense of the love and forgiveness of God. And here's the, the third thing Paul wants to remind us of. Verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The third thing and last thing is I want you to remember your call. Remember your call. Remember that God loved you enough not to just love you as you are, but he loved you enough to love you as you are and then not keep you there. And now he's actually doing this work that theologians call sanctification where over time your heart is beginning to change and he's growing you and he's created a path of good works for you to walk out. In fact, this, this word like workmanship in Greek is poema. It's where we get our word poetry from. And what God is saying is you're my poetry. Like you're, you're, you're something I've fashioned with my own hands, with my own brilliance, and, and I'm putting you on display. And, and, and the way that I want you to live in the world is no longer in the way of the world, walking in the way of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now I actually want you to walk as my workmanship, and I've created you for good works, and I've, I've remade your heart alive so that you can carry out the things that I've called you to carry out. And I think this is one of the aspects of the gospel the sanctification aspect that desperately needs to be recovered in our culture in Oklahoma if we are going to see a sense of renewal and revival. I think that we've had a gospel-centered movement sweep through, and I'm so grateful for that. But now a lot of you just think that now you don't have anything else to do, and you just wake up and go about your day and live however you want, and God still loves you, and it's just fine. And I want to tell you that there's actually so much more to the Christian life. Colossians Three says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If you study revivals in history, what you'll find is that there are seasons in life of the church where sometimes the church needed to recover just the overwhelming sense of the love of God. That happened in the Reformation, just the unconditional love of God. But there are other revivals that happen where people actually need to recover this reality that as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to pursue Jesus back. I'm called to put to death what's earthly in me. I'm called to seek his face. I'm called to live in a certain way. And that has a way of bringing renewal and revival in the world. The Great Awakening was that recovery where we realized that there is a, this holy, different, otherly life that God has called us to. And as we put to death with what's earthly in us, it brings a sense of renewal and revival. So where do we go from here? Well, let me just close by asking you, what aspect of this good news announcement have you had amnesia about? What have you forgotten What needs to be recovered and remembered and embraced? Maybe it's who you once were. Dead. Just completely lost. The holiness of God. Maybe it's what God has done for you, that his love was so overwhelming, it was while you were dead that he made you alive. Maybe it's who you are in Christ. You need to remember. Maybe it's that if you've been raised with Christ, you're actually called to do something with that message, to seek the things that are above where Jesus is. What aspect of the gospel do you need to recover? Maybe you've just forgotten altogether. And I get a sense that our church has kind of forgotten, not as a whole, but a lot of us, because like I announced these beautiful truths that I know that if you really, really understood, you would get up on your chair and start jumping up and down. 
because this is the best news that you've ever heard. It's the best news that you've ever heard.